The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is the Ellis Martin Report. For the next half hour, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. We want you to know up front, eyes wide open, companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here. On the web, find us at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Join me now for a candid interview with America's preeminent expert on precious metals, commodities, and foreign currencies, Jim Sinclair. Mr. Sinclair is the president of sponsor Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the Amex division of the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty focuses primarily on gold assets strategically located in the Lake Victoria Greenstone Belt of Tanzania, one of the most prolific gold-producing regions in the world. The company acquired a 55% interest in the Advanced Stage Buck Reef Gold Mine Development Project, which could see commercial production in 2014. Previously to helming Tanzanian royalty, Mr. Sinclair was the founder of the Sinclair Group of Companies, which offered brokerage services in stocks, bonds, etc., operating in New York, Chicago, Kansas City, Toronto, London, and Geneva. He was an advisor to Hunt Oil and the Hunt family from 1981 through 1984 for the liquidation of their silver position as a prerequisite for the $1 billion loan arranged by former Fed Chairman Paul Volcker. Mr. Sinclair was a general partner and member of the executive committee of two New York stock exchange firms and the president of a commodities clearing firm, as well as Global Arbitrage, a derivative dealer in metals and currencies. And we're pleased to have him as a weekly guest on the Ellis Martin Report. You sound exuberant. Why shouldn't I? <laughs> Extra exuberant today. <laughs> Why not? Is it because of the good news I just read about uh, with uh, Daniel Snow from Equ- Energy Equities? That's very nice. Uh, it's really because um, I just feel good. Oh, okay. you know, it doesn't have to be. It's not that. That was last week, but it doesn't necessarily mean you know anything other than yep, we do. I feel good. <laughs> well, uh, it's good to hear somebody who's feeling uh, fantastic. Uh, it's still uh, it's still morning for us here in California. You're well into your afternoon there, and you're still feeling wonderful. That's fantastic. I couldn't believe it. When when uh, when I heard you were on the phone, I said, you know, this must be eight o'clock in the morning or something. <laughs> no, it's actually Five. it's actually uh, ten o'clock in the morning here. Yeah, I should. Much worse. I actually no thing. I, I honestly see things, you know, like like what what I think today's conversation should be about, unless you have other specific questions. No, go ahead. Um, I I think today we should talk about the spin on the employment figures. Oh, I was, you know, that was going to be one of my questions. It was, uh, it's a huge amount of spin coming out from every Un- single angle. Bloody believable. Oh. I've never seen anything like it. Oh, it's like it's like a heyday now. Bliss has broken out everywhere. I know. Okay. But that's not why you and I are, are happy this morning, is it? I may, it may be contagious. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, I mean, everybody's so happy and 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 uh, on, uh, you know. Uh, what do you call it? Financial TV. They're just they're just going bliss into bliss and giddiness. 
So, you know, I think it might be catching. Well, you predicted this uh, this exuberance a few weeks ago, and by gosh, it started. We're, we're well into February right now. How are you feeling about this uh, quote-unquote positive economic news that's being pumped into our psyche by the government and the media at this time? I think it is actually... Uh, I, I, it, reached a level that has to be defined as a spiritual level. I have never seen an attack of bliss come out of economic figures to, to the degree that uh, the uh, report on employment uh, has, has developed. What we need to keep our eye on is not necessarily uh, the uh, machinations of our uh, money bunnies reporting from the various TV, uh, TV stations about unemployment, but really the most important factor is what is its effect on the U.S. dollar, because down deep, understanding the figures and recognizing that, the, the, that, uh, that one of the finest ways to create a good unemployment figure is to stop looking for a job. Uh, the 80 to 82 range on the USDX is the key level where fundamental selling has taken place. Fundamental selling based on the advent of QE3. Fundamental selling based on the uh, clear uh, beard that was used when the U.S. Federal Reserve created the 500 billion plus swap line and the IMF uh, created its its uh, rescue fund and invited external uh, non-member contributions uh, to be able to make at least the first quarter rollover in the euro in the euro debt possible, all of that's going to be filtered right into the dollar, and uh, the the competition between the management of perspective economics, and clearly that's what you see on the airwaves, what you see on the headline on on the Wall Street Journal Sunday uh, Saturday Sunday edition. Uh, Clearly, all of that will resolve itself into a common denominator, which can be defined as the price at which the dollar trades on the USDX index. The, there is a terrific amount of resistance right now at 79.645, at 79.645, which it touched in today. And between 80 and 82, I believe there's a fundamental stone wall created by those significant dollar holders, which really see that position to be a position by default that wish to uh, diversify out of the U.S. dollar. Are we talking about the Chinese possibly and some, uh, some entities in the Middle East as being uh, so-called non-member contributors? I think you're speaking about China particularly because on our last conversation we defined uh, the, the supply of dollars required would come from Fed swaps. Uh, and the uh, management of the euro with, the, with that 1.3 in front of it, which is almost inexplicable, uh, looking at the euro's condition and remembering it traded at a 1.19, you look at the Chinese to be the managers of the euro, uh, and you look at the U.S. Fed as the suppliers of the dollars required in order to, uh, in order to um, prevent uh, another liquidity crisis. You've got these banks such as J.P. Morgan uh, in bed with the Chinese entities, and uh, what do you think their end game is when they're uh, they're touting their business over there in China? 
Well, when there's business to be done, obviously uh, it, the, it's the establishment that does the business. And uh, the, the, fa- the fact, I wrote a book, as you may know, in 19, I think it was in 1995 it was published, dealing with the future of China, India, and Africa. And clearly, there is really no stopping China, because regardless of whether the swings China might have from time to time, like all economic cycles, when you begin to incorporate into an, into an economic system, uh, in the smallest percentage of a huge population, you create markets as big as, as, as Euroland itself in, in, in one swoop. So there's no question in my mind that uh, the leading economy of the world will be China, second U.S., third India. And I think you could probably have a, have a trade between uh, U.S. and India between who will be second and who will be third. It's simply when you enfranchise into an economy even the small percentage of those huge populations, you create markets for consumption the size of Spain, the size of Germany, et cetera, et cetera, until you've, until you've actually created a new Euroland. So China, the... So doing business in China is an absolute necessity. Now, China has been for a long time uh, politically isolated, if you will. Uh, That political isolation broke down in 85, and uh, China became business people. But China, if you've been in there, or especially if you do business with the Chinese, you'll discover quite quickly the China is, ch- hasn't changed at all. The Chinese are Maoists who want money more than territory. Maoists who want money more than territory. And the analysts who discuss China seem to, seems to believe that China's economy will function uh, very much like an economy in the West where free choice has a, a great deal to do with markets. Uh, China has free choice. But as Maoists who want money, believe me, when China's population is, cho- is told to march, they begin and they march. So it's an entirely different situation. Uh, the major, uh, major wealth families, the biggest banks in the world, uh, the largest international corporations, all have to be established in China and India. Is it in? It's got to be in the interest of China, therefore, with so many dollars that they're holding to participate in QE3. It would, it, it's, it's in China's benefit not to have uh, the uh, euro go into a total crisis situation. Uh, it's in China's benefit to contribute to, to that as much as, as possible. It would be in China's benefit to offload dollars by whatever means, but as it seems now, China is in the market for euros while the Fed uh, supplies the, uh, the dollars to, to prevent a liquidity crisis. Where does the yuan fit within all of this? Uh, most likely a reserve currency by default. Nobody should want to be a reserve currency because it, 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 uh, it carries with it as much of a deficit in what you're doing as it does in credits in terms of your, your, your corporate and internal strength. Uh, there, I would suggest uh, reserve currency by default. You were very optimistic the last time we spoke about general equities and gold stocks, at least uh, with the general equities in the short term, and by that I mean a year or two out. 
Uh, General equities, uh, there's, a, there's an axiom, uh, and it's, it has been correct forever, and it's going to remain correct forever. The grease of the wheels of the equity markets is liquidity. So as you supply liquidity, the wheels turn faster and easier in a sense of higher prices, regardless of whatever is going on in the general economy. Since I don't believe that these uh, employment figures are, in fact, truly reflective of the employment situation, uh, I would say that, you know, it could be that uh, that just quite recently has been the positive uh, for equities. The underlying uh, stage, let's say, uh, foundation, if you will, that will prevent equities from imploding uh, in difficult business is the fact that QE3 does exist as we're speaking, certainly exists on a global scale, as we've discussed uh, with the Fed action. So uh, I think the floor under these reactions is provided by, Q, by QE, while probably this recent few days has been more a product of the employment figures than anything else. So the status quo wants to remain in power and is, is I'm going to say it, Jim Sinclair is not necessarily going to say it, uh, uh, the books might be cooked, might be, underline, 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 the books might be cooked in order to keep everything the way it is come November. Now, these 5 million people that are unemployed in the U.S., uh, are they going to vote or are they not going to vote? They're going to vote. I'm sure they're going to vote because that, that's, that's the way a citizen exercises, exercises whatever political power they have. If they didn't vote, they're accepting their situation, and that could only be because of uh, a depression. Uh, I think they will vote, and I think they'll vote against whoever's in, whoever is in office. So no matter how these numbers are, are cooked, baked, and uh, taken out to a, a cake sale, it doesn't necessarily change a possible reality in November. Well, you're basically asking an interesting question. If you could fudge the figures in 1930, would you have had a depression till 1940? Uh, I, I, my position is more that the, the, the changes that have been made in the means and by, by which the uh, figures are, are um, calculated, and a very good comment, uh, commenter on that, commentary on that is uh, David Williams in Shadow Statistics. The way that they've, the way the changes have taken place to benefit more positive figures, is going to continue to be overrun at least to a point of neutral by reality. Uh, I don't think that uh, the figures are as much fudged as the means of calculating them have been set up to uh, clearly benefit the positive result rather than a negative result. I guess that's a, that might be a, a definition of fudging. Oh, it's all in how it's reduced, isn't it? Yes. So I don't think that they, that they, that they could absolutely uh, just change the figures and, and put out anything they wanted to. I think, more, I, I think that the negative uh, pressure on employment, meaning those that are unemployed, uh, is so significant. And business is doing nothing but bouncing along a bottom that it really hasn't shown any signs of, a, of an intact uptrend. The only reason car sales are so high is because if you lose your house, you can go buy a nice Cadillac Escalade for 500 bucks and live in it. It's the only place where subprime loans thrive today. So the business environment out there is not supportive of a significant uh, return to employment 
at the rate that would be required to establish uh, significant uh, recovery uh, for those that are looking for a job over the next year or five years. So at, at best, I think the, the, uh, the employment reports will be rather neutral, and that this exuberance right now is more uh, a, an attempt at management of prospective economics. That is that if you can make markets ebullient, uh, you might might change uh, business decisions. Uh, I don't think there's enough enough steam out there to make that happen. So I would suggest that the coming reports are going to be a little less favorable than what we what we've just seen, and that uh, QE3 will be the basis to maintain general equity prices during the election year. So we don't see a lot of positive change that could happen within 10 or 11 months to. Uh to ex to counter exploit the uh, unemployment situation that no. Uh, exists. No, no, I don't. I don't believe you can see that, but I do believe that every effort will be made through uh, the addition of liquidity uh, to prevent it from rolling over on the negative side. Changing the subject just a little bit, although it's related, uh, what can the American consumer do to protect? Uh, his or herself uh, against what's coming. Uh, should we just get rid of our credit cards right now and only buy well, what you, we can you, afford? You basically uh, hit, the, hit it on the nose. The average consumer can't go out and make investments that will benefit from uh, from these difficulties. Uh, but the average the average listener can certainly pay attention to their own situation. And if the problem we have, and it is so that the entire world is, is, uh, is drowning in debt, then whatever can be done to lighten the debt load of each, of each person should be done. In other words, you've got to bite the bullet. Uh, and, you, and you should consider yourself extraordinarily lucky if you're in a position where you can do that. Standard of living is changing. And the attempt to maintain prior standards is what causes bankruptcy. And if the condition is bankruptcy, then the listener should face it as it is and do the necessary, uh, because it's not going to get better. So it's, it's a willingness to accept a uh, different lifestyle that will keep you out of getting into more trouble. Trying to maintain a past lifestyle in, as, as a result of the uh, our banks and financial institutions, destruction of our economic system uh, is impossible. Recognize it and, uh, and do the necessary. Well, what if you're addicted to, uh, to borrowing on your credit cards, like somebody might be addicted to smoking or, or, or drinking? It's something that you can't stop. Well, you've got to go to, like any other bad habit, you've got to go to the bottom before you can change. You've got to admit you have a problem before, you, before, the, before anything can be done. So enjoy buying your new TV, get a couple of new cars, see if you can get a house or two, and wait for the explosion. You know, it's been my philosophy for a long time that instead of buying these TVs and gadgets, and, you know, I'm, I'm as guilty of it as anybody, uh, divert some of that into uh, precious metals. Well, that, that does make great sense. But for the average guy, how about diverting it into, into, into bringing that debt down or consolidating the debt and stopping it right here? Or if you are bankrupt, go bankrupt.
the uh, ability for listeners to go out again in a general sense and, and you know invest in gold or gold gold mining companies or or, or the type of items that will benefit uh, from this unfortunate situation, they're, they just simply uh, don't have the ability. What they've got to do is say, "What can I do?" and then define it and do it. I mean, basically, if if we're talking to people who are alcoholics, where debt is concerned. And they, ha- and they think they have a problem, they can't get, even get into step number one for recovery. Well, essentially, if, if you're not in, in the markets right now, you don't know anything about precious metals or... Right. Well, uh, but did, then why, even then yourself, you're... yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I look everywhere to see where expenses can be cut. Um, you know, I, 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 you ask yourself, how many suits do you need? And isn't one car enough? Uh, you look at your own lifestyle and recognize that uh, that things are changing, and you got to change with it. Uh, changing politicians is not does not undo the damage that's done. And during an election year, there isn't there isn't a politician out there that's going to take any firm stand in any manner to be able to uh, overcome the problems and the opportunity to change what we have now has passed us. The damage done re, uh, gives us a situation where there is no practical solution. If what is conservative and right was to be done, uh, you could probably hear the economic explosion on Mars. Uh, you can't do the right thing politically at this point in time without creating as much harm as the problem itself. So whether your financial straits are good or they're poor, you're recommending that everyone basically consolidate. Absolutely. Face the, you know, bite the bullet. Look around you. See what's there. Don't, don't, don't uh, listen to the great employment figures, which will give you the hope that tomorrow you, uh, things will get better. Uh, that might, it might make you go out and say, yeah, I think I will buy that uh, foreclosed home and speculate. Or that just says, go out and get, me, get yourself a new suit or whatever. Uh, consolidate. Absolutely. This is what must be done. And do what with those with that those consolidated funds that you might have? Just enjoy. You know, there's there's a life out there. There are people. There's family. There's a, there's a Super Bowl game. Whatever it is that you enjoy, that doesn't cost a lot of money. Uh, you know, just uh, be under less tension. Live life. You don't have to live life by living things. You know, it's amazing how many people, uh, well, at least I hear of this, I haven't, I haven't seen a lot of evidence of it, but I'm sure you have in your travels, how many folks in these poor countries uh, truly are happy? I've seen, I, I've seen happy people destroyed uh, by, the, uh, by, by, by wealth. Wealth never going to buy you happiness. If you're not happy before, wealth isn't going to help you at all. Uh, you'll, you'll suffer from the, uh, from the syndrome of winning the lottery. Uh, you know, if, if, the, if everyone around you has gone mad, maybe it's a good time to seek sanity. And on that note, I wish everybody uh, that message. Seek sanity, enjoy life, and uh, take a nice walk if you can. And a glass of cold water. It's terrific. I'm drinking one right now. Jim, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I really enjoy our our new discussions, and I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Have a, have a fantastic rest of the week. Well, thank you very much, Allison. Thank you, and I'd like to thank the listeners. I've been talking with Jim Sinclair, president of Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, 
trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. Get out your crayons and write this down, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin, once again reporting from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference, and I'm sitting here with one of our sponsor companies, Gold Rush Resources, which trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GOD.V, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX, just type in GDRRF. I'm with Len Brownlee, the president of Gold Rush. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Ellis. Uh, Thanks for having me on the program again. Now, you're focused on gold exploration in Burkina Faso, West Africa. You were there in December, I believe. And let's talk about Burkina Faso. Why is that so fascinating? Uh, Burkina Faso is probably the best place in the world right now to be doing gold exploration. Uh, Many people have heard of the gold exploration being conducted in the Yukon Territory in Canada. The problem there is it's only about a three-month field season. Burkina has an 11-month field season. There have been six new mines opened in the last five years, with another four mines that will probably be opened here in the next two to three years. It's very underexplored. It has great geology and just a wonderful place to work. So by field season of 11 months, you mean there's basically no time with the exception of one month that you're shut down? Well, and that's variable. Uh, In the north of the country, it's probably less than a month. In the south of the country, closer to the equator, uh, they do have a a bit longer rainy season. Last year, we drilled right through the rainy season on some of our projects because the rains really didn't affect us. Some areas do, however, get a little bit more rain, and there you're looking at probably one month to a maximum of two months that uh, you'd be shut down. Now, Burkina Faso is in West Africa, which is a very prolific area for gold mining. Let's educate our new listeners and enlighten them as to why that's true. Burkina Faso was underexplored historically. It was sort of left alone. It was a former French colony, totally landlocked, a very poor country on the United Nations Development Index, and it just didn't see a lot of exploration. But that didn't mean it didn't have a lot of potential. The amount of greenstone belts, which is one measure of the prospectivity of an area, uh, is higher there than it is in Ghana, Mali, or Niger. And certainly those countries have received much more exploration focused by international companies. Now, that has changed now over the last, say, 10 years. And there have been more and more companies coming into Burkina, and they've been having wonderful exploration success. If you look at Western Australia or the Yukon, the exploration costs per ounce of gold are somewhere around $150 an ounce. In Burkina, they're more likely 10 to $15 an ounce. And, and so it, you just get a lot more bang for your buck as an explorer in looking for gold in Burkina because it's much easier to find and there's been fewer eyes looking on the ground for it. So it's a much more prospective place to be than pretty much anywhere else in West Africa. Now, last time we talked, you had alluded to some potential news coming out in a few weeks. Well, those few weeks have come by. This just came out a few days ago. You intersected 8.77 grams per ton of gold over 23 meters and 8.34 grams per ton of gold over 6 meters in fill-in drilling at your flagship Ranjin gold deposit. Yeah, that's right. We're very, very pleased with those results. Early stage, to some extent, we are infill drilling and looking to update our resource estimate sort of end of the first quarter. So this was infill drilling, but it was also deeper and in areas where we had very little coverage previously. And although interpretation isn't uh, precise at this point, it does look like we've uncovered a cross fault with a deeper lens of higher grade gold. I mean, that 8.7 grams is about a quarter ounce gold. 
typical grades in Burkina are on the order of one and a half to two grams. So to get 8.7 gram material is very encouraging. And we still have about 58 holes to announce from the program that we conducted at Rongin. We also have 13 trenches just completed there and results from those. And on top of that, we have another four permits with drill results pending where we think we've at least on one of them, have really uncovered something quite remarkable. Now, compared to your peers, you may be dramatically undervalued, and this is the type of company that many investors get into, potentially, when they're looking for that three or four or five or ten banger. They want to find a company that's under a dollar, or in your case, under 30 cents, so that they can hang in for the long term and see some real gains, especially when you're compared to some of the peers that exist in that area. I would like to think that Gold Rush would be a very attractive investment at this point. We have an excellent exploration team that has been put in place over the last year or so. They have between them 15 to 17 years each, I guess, experience. Our chief geologist, John Learn, has five discoveries in Burkina Faso to his name. Our VP Corporate Development and our VP Exploration are also very experienced guys with discoveries to their name. We have a crew of 45 geologists and support workers in Burkina with a fully staffed office. So we're in really good shape in terms of exploration potential and the ability to find gold. We have reasonable capitalization at this point. We've got just so many good projects that we're drilling or have just drilled. So there's really a pipeline of exploration potential, not just one project not just a couple of guys. So I'd like to think that that sort of scenario would be attractive to investors because it's more than a one-shot deal. We're going to do well with Rongun. We think that'll become a, a mine at some point. Then as well, we have a pipeline of projects all the way from grassroots to farther advanced. This company is not necessarily new in the business, is it? The original company that is now called Gold Rush was incorporated in 1966. And as is the case in in the resource industry, sometimes they go through some transformations over the years depending on market cycles. Gold Rush itself has been in Burkina Faso for six years and is actually one of the elder statesmen of companies in that country. It was sort of part of the first wave, I guess, of exploration companies into the country that began conducting modern exploration there, and that was about 2006. Yeah, an old company and then relatively experienced with regard to Burkina. Subsequent to that, there's been at least two or three waves of exploration companies from Australia and Canada who have come to to Burkina and are picking up the third and fourth level permits. We think we've got some of the best permits in the country at this point. Let's look ahead a year or two. What are your plans for the company? Number one, to advance the Rongwin deposit to the feasibility stage and take it through feasibility with the concept being that we'd like to have a a going concern mining operation, open pit heap leach mining operation at Rongen. And number two, to advance as many of our other targets as possible to a more advanced state, whether it be pre-feasibility or feasibility. And these things will take two to three years, but the prospectivity of the ground there and the ease in finding gold is such that it's not improbable or impractical for that sort of timeline to be followed. So those are our two main objectives. And I think along the way, as we demonstrate more ounces in the ground and partnerships with larger companies, et cetera, these will be the sorts of milestones that should lead to an increase in share value. And that's ultimately what our goal is for our shareholders, to give them the best value possible. Well, Len, we certainly do appreciate you being a sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Let's look for some more developments from you in the future. Thank you very much for joining us today in the program. Thanks very much, Ellis, for the opportunity. We look forward to some good news coming out in the next month. I've been speaking with Len Brownlee the president of Gold Rush Resources. Gold Rush trades on the TS.
TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol G-O-D and in the U.S. on the OTCQX, just type in G-D-R-R-F or you can find them on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Ian Chalmers is the managing director of a company with a market cap of nearly $650 million with significant assets of zirconium, rare earths, and rare metals, as well as gold and copper in New South Wales, Australia. Alkane Resources trades in the U.S. on the OTCQX as ANLKY. That's ANLKY. The Alkane story has been a compelling one, reflecting the success of their Dubbo Zirconia project and the international market for zirconium and rare metal resources. Ian, welcome back to the program. Thank you. You issued a release noting that you signed a deed of agreement with New South Wales Development of Trade and Investment Regional Infrastructure and Services to receive financial assistance for infrastructure for the development of your wholly owned subsidiary, the Tomlin Lee Gold Project. You'll be receiving some financial assistance to develop this project. Uh, yes, it's quite an unusual event, I'm sure, anywhere in the world to get government assistance these days to develop resource projects. But uh, yes, our local state government has come in to help us out with some infrastructure, mainly the the water supply and power supply to the Tomlingley Gold Project. It's a good result because it's a win-win for both us and the local community because the water and the power will ultimately be used for the, for the little tiny village of Tomlingley to help maintain its standards there. So it's a good result. It's certainly nice to have state participation in encouraging development of commerce, especially the mining industry in New South Wales. Fortunately, the state government does have a strong policy of trying to assist regional development. In other words, get development in the state outside of the sort of main metropolitan areas, and this is a good step forward. I mean, although Dubbo itself is quite a sizable city nearby to us, some of the other smaller towns and little tiny towns like Tamingley need all the help they can get. So in this case, by helping us to build the gold project on the Tamingley doorstep, but also leave a legacy long-term of a decent water supply to the town and a, and a decent electricity supply. It's a good result, and we certainly encourage the state government to keep doing these sorts of projects. When do you expect to produce gold and generate revenue at Tomlingley? At this stage, it looks like it'll be early 2013. We're still awaiting the final development approval from the state government. That's obviously a different department from the one that's just put its hand in its pocket to help out. So uh, whether the planning department that we're estimating will have approval. And then it's about 12-month constructing time to build the plant and get it up and running. So realistically, late 2012, early 2013. So you expect to be a gold producer in relatively short order? Yeah, sure. It's a modest-sized project, but it does generate substantial substantial returns. It'll, it'll generate 30 to $40 million a year, certainly past our base case of seven and a half years out to 10 years. And it's a project that we can build on. And that's always been the strategy. Look, start off relatively modest, but we think over time we can extend out its life. There are other synergies in the regions. Obviously, things like the, the Dubbo-Zirconia project, there's a long-term synergy there that we can use the gold development of Tomingley also. Well, there's nothing modest about the Dubbo-Zirconia project, is there? No, true. It's a world-class project and certainly uh, heading in the right direction. Everything we've done in the last uh, two or three years has certainly progressed towards that development. What can you tell us about progress with Dubbo? I guess many things are going on. We did complete the feasibility study back in September. I think we've, you and I have talked about that already. But it certainly showed what a robust project it is, even using very conservative revenue stream. Uh, and I think the other thing that you know we like to stress with the project is that two components of it, the zirconium and the heavy rare earth output, really are very strategically important in the whole world sense. I mean, the project will be one of the more significant non-Chinese producers of both of those commodities. 
unfortunately we also have the NIABM and the light rare earth output which help the revenue stream but it all adds up to making it a very very good project and then going forward from here we've got MOUs we've got all the zirconium output tied up under MOU now we're very close to finalising a NIABM MOU and then the rare earths and certainly the rare earths are very interesting stage it's a lot more complicated to put in the right sort of deal in place for that uh, but I hope that sometime early in the new year we'll have that in place as well so a lot of things going on should have the environmental assessment work done then of course that goes into the state government for the approvals process so we're still on targets to have production in 2014 but it will depend a little bit on the state's attitude as to how quickly they can proceed the, the approvals process. You already have at least three offtake agreements that I'm aware of before you even go into production. Not too many companies can make that claim. That's very true, and certainly uh, that's very important. I mean, in fact, it, I mean, it sounds a bit silly, but uh, we actually, right now, would probably have 120%, 130% of our zirconium output potentially sold, and that's because one of the MOUs is not restricted to any particular tonnage or volume. It's very open-ended at this stage, and with strong markets into both Europe and North America. So it's a good place to be with the zirconium, and it's always governed the size of the project. I mean, the, the more zirconium we can sell the bigger the project can be but the others have said like the Niobin very close to being finalised and then the rare earths we're working on a slightly different concept with the rare earths rather than just sell the two concentrates as they are we're sort of targeting a joint venture with existing separation facilities whereby we can participate in the upside of that the separation to produce the individual rare earth oxide so there's quite a fair amount of work involved in putting that together to get it to a status where you could say yes we have a, a genuine deal in place. Now, some would say that you have a fairly decent share price near $11 a share, but the reality is the sector has taken quite a hit, and your company has too with all that you have going. You might say that your company stock is tremendously undervalued, and it could be a good place to get in, possibly. I agree. Absolutely correct. The whole sector's been unmercifully belted, is probably the words that I'd use. And some of it's been quite misinformed. I think there's been some reports about, you know, I've seen things like rare earth market collapses, rare earth prices collapse. And realistically, that's a long way from the truth. Certainly, the two big bulk volume rare earths like lanthanum and cerium have dropped in price, but they're certainly still way above levels that they were at the beginning of this year. So we haven't seen a collapse. And it's just very frustrating when you see media reports that talk about that and of course what happens is that permeates through the whole industry and we all cop it. But going back to Alkane certainly I guess proportionately we have been hit, uh, probably not quite as hard as some but that markdown does not reflect all the assets inside the company and where we are in terms of our development profile and doesn't reflect the gold, doesn't reflect the very large resource we've got in joint venture with Newmont which you know hopefully will get developed sometime in the next few years. So yeah we've certainly been belted I suppose is a good word. Again you have a non-commercial pilot plant where you're testing your production capabilities and many other companies have yet to complete their feasibility studies and don't have their infrastructure laid out. I don't see why potential investors shouldn't continue to take a look at Alkane now as an investment possibility. Yeah, again, I have to agree with you. Uh, certainly the pilot plant from both the chemical engineering component and the marketing side of it's been extremely important. And then really all projects have to go through this pilot plant at some stage. You can't ultimately get to the point where you can be guaranteed a sign-off on your project on its viability before you've done that, before you get products out to the marketplace. Because all these products are different. Each process produces a slightly different product. And then, of course, the end users have got to be able to add that product to their particular application. So... 
uh, obviously if you can't sell the material you don't really have a very good project and uh, it's, it is an important part and again it's something that we deliberately set out to do 2005-2006 and then had the plant running at 2008 it's still running today we'll operate it through just on product development improving the quality of our products changing the mix working on different ideas of improving recoveries and all of those sort of things which again the only way you can do that's by a fully operating pilot plant. And of course you're trading in the US which is a huge asset. Yes it is it's been an interesting exercise and certainly it's something that we'd like to push further and like to develop further and it's just again it's sort of slow penetrating into the North American market it always is from Australian from an Australian perspective I mean we're the other side of the world we're in a very different time zone but we certainly are making some progress with that listing. Ian it's always a pleasure to speak with you thanks for joining me today on the program. Thanks very much Ellis a pleasure as usual. I've been speaking with Ian Chalmers president of Alkane Resources under the symbol ANLKY. That's ANLKY. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. Hey, it's me, Cool Voice Guy. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all of them, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Scott Drever, the president of Silvercrest Mines, which trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as STVZF. Silvercrest Mines is a Mexican precious metals producer with headquarters based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Their flagship property is the 100% owned Santa Elena Mine, which is located northeast of Hermosillo in the prolific state of Sonora, Mexico. The mine is a high-grade epithermal gold and silver producer. The company anticipates that the 2,500 tons per day facility should produce an average of approximately 800,000 ounces of silver and 30,000 ounces of gold per full production year from the open pit heave leach operation. I'm Ellis Martin, today reporting from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm up here with the president of Silvercrest Mines, that's Scott Drever. Silvercrest trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX, just type in STVZF. Scott, nice to see you again. Seems like just a few days ago we were in Beverly Hills, and now we're in Vancouver. How are you? I'm really well, Ellis, and thanks for having me again. Now, you've had some developments with respect to La Jolla that you alluded to when we spoke last in December. What's been happening in La Jolla? Well, I think in December when we spoke, we were in the midst of doing a resource calculation for La Jolla, our initial resource. We got that work done, and we did the release, at least the press release, on the summary results of that, which showed that we have 109 million ounces of silver equivalents in an inferred category. That's a game changer, I'd like to to say maybe you're not saying it, but it's a definitely a game changer. And uh, what's the next step with regard to La Jolla then? Certainly, I think your words are reasonably well chosen. It's, it's significant for us, and it has the earmarks of being significant in the mining industry. We, of course, tested only a small portion of the potential area with that result of uh, 109 million ounces of silver equivalent. And uh, we are anxious, of course, to uh, look at the remainder of the potential area. And so we've embarked on a, uh, an 80-hole program. We have one drill rig that has been running there since early December, and we have two more drill rigs lined up to go in here shortly. 
Now, I should review for those that are hearing about your company for the first time that you're a producer in the silver and the gold space with regard to your flagship project, Santa Elena, and that project is financing a lot of your present and future operations, isn't it? Yes, it is. We started the uh, Santa Elena Mina last year. We've reached pretty much steady state. It's an open pit heap leach operation that last year on a, on a partial production year we produced, I think it was 20, almost 27,000 ounces of gold and about 430,000 ounces of silver. So that is providing us with a nice stable uh, cash flow platform that will enable us to uh, do the expansion plan that we have on tap at Santa Elena to uh, double the production over the next three years and allow us to do aggressive uh, exploration work on a project like La Jolla. Now, you really weren't affected at all, at least not drastically. You saw some share price growth. I believe the value of your stock increased by about 35 to 40 percent during October, November, uh, pulled back just a little bit in November. Compared to your peers, that's a tremendous growth. But what do you think is responsible for that? Well, I think it's uh, just a progression of things and us doing what we said we would do. We said we would be in production uh, on time and on budget, and we were. We said our production would be a certain number of ounces, and we're hitting those targets. So those things are online, and that helps, of course, if you have cash flow that you don't have to go back to the equity markets, then, of course, that helps stabilize your price, I think, as well. Now, you had a couple of research analyst reports that have come out within the last year or so that had your share price value at double what it is now within the next 12 to 16 months, but that valuation was done before this latest report. Do you think that will change? Yeah, the two uh, analysts that have put out reports on us, one is Stuart McDougall out of Jennings in Toronto, and the other is Nick Campbell out of uh, Canaccord Genuity here in Vancouver. As you say, they've both picked target numbers that are about double our $2.25 share price at the moment, and I would encourage your, your listeners to uh, check with those particular uh, companies to to look at those reports. They did include some minor values, I think, for the La Jolla. And as we move forward, of course, those will probably change upwards as we go forward. Now, you're fairly tightly held, too. We don't have 250, 300 million shares out there, do we? Our outstanding and issued right now at the moment is about 87.5 million, I think. Fully diluted, we're just under 100 million, which compared to a lot of companies, as you point out, is not a lot. And over the course of the past few months, I haven't seen a lot of hostile activity either related to your stock? Hostile in that you mean uh, selling off of the stock? No, it it looks like some accumulation going on and obviously we're bumping around our all-time highs. So if we can establish that base uh, above $2, uh, then that gives us a real nice platform to move uh, upwards from their pending uh, positive results from uh, Santa Elena and La Jolla. Now, one of the analysts I interview is David Morgan, and he has silver hitting $60 an ounce sometime during this year, 2012. Of course, that can't be bad news for your company. It's got to be good news if fact that does happen. Yeah, I know David and I've interviewed with him a couple of times and his $60 number isn't outside of my belief system. I think probably a base of of $29 for silver is, is pretty decent. I don't anticipate it being at 60 and staying there. Uh, I would think probably, you know, overall an average of 40, 45, somewhere there. But to hit 60 wouldn't surprise me a bit. Can I ask you what the cost of production per ounce is for Silvercrest? 
we're still in a bit of a ramp up mode here. We're almost to steady state where we can put a hard number on those. But our last year numbers are up until the third quarter of last year. We were seeing something in the order of 750 an ounce of uh, silver equivalent. So we've got very, very good margins at Santa Elena. What are you going to be doing during the next 12 months? We've started on, a, on an expansion program, as I mentioned, uh, at Santa Elena. That entails putting in a conventional mill. We're doing underground development. Uh, we started the decline here last week, and that'll be going through 2012. We're doing a pre-feasibility study on a satellite deposit cruise de Mayo. Of course, we're going to be very aggressive on uh, La Jolla to uh, turn around a second resource estimate after we finish this 80-hole program. Well, Scott, it's always a pleasure to meet with you and speak with you. I've been speaking with the president of Silvercrest Mines, Scott Drever. Again, Silvercrest trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and in the U.S. on the OTCQX, easily found. Just type in STVZF from the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. Scott Drever, thanks for joining us today. Find a link to the Silvercrest website on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. In this segment, I'll be speaking with Neil Ringdahl, the president of Apogee Silver Limited. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol APE and in the U.S. as AGEEF. Apogee Silver is a dynamic Toronto-based junior exploration and development company with a strategic focus on advanced stage silver, zinc, and lead deposits in world-class mineral districts in South America. Apogee's primary focus is the Pulacayo Paca property located in southwestern Bolivia. Apogee has been advancing the property since 2006, through a joint venture agreement with Golden Minerals Company. Apogee is also exploring the Cachinal Silver property located in northern Chile. Apogee has a recent share price of 18 cents and is a paid sponsor of the Ellis Martin Report. Neil, welcome back to the program. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Ellis, and thank you very much for having me on the program. Give us an update on Apogee Silver. Well, we've commenced our trial mining since uh, we last spoke, and the guys are still busy with development. We should start opening up the first uh, couple of stubs in the next month or two. It's very exciting. We've been receiving really, really good grades. I'd love to be able to disclose what they are, but we're just doing our checks and balances and making sure that the numbers are correct. It's very exciting news and certainly very pleasing to have better-than-expected results. You recently disclosed on December 20th two drill hole results, 515 grams per ton of silver at one and 462.9 grams per ton at another. That's fairly significant. Yeah, those are individual drill hole results, and obviously you can't take that on their own, but you know, there's other drill holes that you've got to take them into account with. But they're certainly indicative of a very prospective resource, and you know, we're certainly seeing sort of comparable numbers in the underground. The question is how much dilution are we going to get and so on, and that's why we're busy with the trial mining program to firm up on those numbers to see what we're going to get out. You know, we should start, once we've built up a little stockpile, we will start uh, custom toll milling, and that will provide us with a uh, useful information for just confirmatory on our plant design, which we're finalizing as well right now. You know, that really sets the scene for us to take the company to the next stage, which is to put the mine into production and start producing silver commercially from within Bolivia. Is there any way to pin down the timeline on that? Very much depends on how our permitting process goes with the permitting of our plant. I think uh, I might have mentioned to you before that we had a permit for mining and custom toll milling for up to 200 tons per day. 
and currently in the process of obtaining a second permit for a 400 ton per day processing facility at the site. That involves a number of stakeholders and a number of processes and we're in the middle of that and so we're expecting to receive you know, an environmental permit in the second quarter of this year and from there we will go straight into construction and uh, hopefully have a plant in commercial production early in 2013. Well that's just over a year away. It's a very prolific part of Latin America and you have a unique arrangement with the government and the people in Bolivia. That's right. I think most of the companies that are operating in Bolivia have gone the extra mile to working with the local communities in that, but we enjoy special support from the local community in that the mine is a historical mine. It produced, uh, you know, 9 million ounces for 75 years before it was uh, closed down in 1952. So the local people were very, very excited to see the mine come back into production again. It's going to, you know, receive some of its former glory that it will regain some of its former glory that it had before. So we're seeing a lot of support from that point of view. And we also gone the extra mile in terms of making sure that we employ guys local to the area and we're training up the people local to the area into more skilled positions as well, as opposed to getting in contractors and so on. And that's important because, you know, if you don't invest in the people in the area, then uh, they don't buy into the project. And you need to have that in this day and age. You can't expect to just, you know, build a clinic and expect the guys to be happy with that you've got to go the extra mile and make sure that they see the benefits of any development in their particular you know, zone of influence or the mine. You know? What kind of job pool of experienced miners is available locally? That's the trouble. We were you know, hoping to find a large number of skilled people, but it seems that that's not the case. So we find that a lot of the, you know, we're going through a fairly steep learning curve with the guys we've employed, training them up from scratch. You know, they're new to mining. They're young people. Their grandfathers did the mining. Many of them are not around anymore. So we're having to start from the beginning again. We've got the patience for that, and I think it's important to have the patience for that because it'll pay the dividends in the medium term. What we're doing is we're uh, complementing the local force with a few skilled professionals. We've got a multinational management team, Bolivians. We have Peruvians, South Africans. We have Canadians on our team. You know, these guys all work together in expatriate environments, if you like, and have the experience of dealing with workforces that are perhaps not as skilled as we'd like to, but they also have the skills of training them up and getting them up to a level that's of a world-class standard. I recently interviewed David Morgan, and he's forecasting a $60 an ounce price point for silver before the end of this year. If that's the case, that may double the value of whatever resource you'll be reporting from where silver sits today. That's right. I mean, your cutoff grade drops significantly if the metal prices go up. Our life of mine plan is based on a very conservative, you know, $22 silver price, which is, you know, the kind of engineering way of looking at it. If you put in a $60 silver price, you know, that kind of, I would say, doubles your return on investment, definitely. And it also doubles the resource size. If you want to mine a larger resource, you can look at a completely different uh, scenario, maybe bringing in some more lower-grade tons and, you know, expanding the mine going forward to capitalize on the increased total number of ounces that we have in the resource. For me, it's, it's really exciting because it immediately drives, you know, the revenue number. And if you've got a cost per ounce of 9 or $10 per ounce as a mining cost, you know, maybe 12 or $13, 12 to $15 for a total cost of, to company, and you have a revenue or a price of $60 but that's, that's a significant profit margin, isn't it? It certainly is. Neil, as always, it's been great to catch up with you. I look forward to some potentially exciting news for Apogee Silver coming up next time we speak, hopefully. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Ellis. I've been speaking with the president of Apogee Silver, Neil Ringdahl. Apogee trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol APE and in the U.S. as AGEEF. 
The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored in part by Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty's Buck Reef Project is an advanced stage gold project currently in feasibility in Tanzania with a commercial production target approximately 30 months away. With $30 million in their treasury, the company is prepared to further explore and develop the property. The president of the Tanzanian Royalty is renowned commodities expert Jim Sinclair. Visit our website, TanzanianRoyalty.com. That's TanzanianRoyalty.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. They paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 